You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, welcome. Whoa. Whoa. Welcome to the program. My name is Chris Spangle. You're listening to episode 331 on this fine November evening, the 27th of 2018. We're going to talk about wildfires tonight, so stay tuned for that. It is just me. Harry had an emergency, so uh, I'm flying solo tonight. So we'll be right back after these brief messages from your announcer. Warning. This show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. All right, everybody, welcome back to the program. Again, my name is Chris Spangle. Um, Harry is supposed to be here at 7. And at 7 p.m., no, 6.59, I'll be fair, texted me and what did he say? Let me actually look this up. Um... Strut Tower Mount Broken. Strut Tower Mount Broken. To which I replied, is this on a car or a computer? (laughs) And then I finally, uh, he said a car. For those of you as technologically illiterate as I, uh, he said he would not be able to make it. So Harry is not here. Uh, It is just me. And, um, you know, I am a professional As many of you know, um, I have done this program for nearly six years now. Is that true? No, nearly seven. Wow, six and a half years now. Uh, I've done like three or four of these by myself. Uh, They've been major successes, I I can tell you uh, from... Well, nobody's told me they're major successes, but I'm going to choose to believe that. So, you know, here's the thing about doing an ensemble show that I have uh, figured out over the last year um you know harry and uh my my former co-host greg they were they're like rocks they were here well greg was here every thursday harry has a spotty track record lately uh and you know they're they're here tuesdays and so when you have somebody who is just a dedicated co-host they they know it's on their schedule tuesday thursday i'm there uh, and when you have an ensemble and you try to put it together, it's like people's schedules are like water. 
And so we've been fairly inconsistent over the last year with that second episode. And, you know, the the great thing about Wall right now is that it is less about the ensemble. You know, some of the the older shows that got a little too raunchy, a little too uh, more in the comedy direction, a little light on the philosophy news end of it. Uh, very fun shows, but I don't think they're near as informative as they are now. I mean, I'm doing so much more reading, and it's so much more intellectually stimulating and so much less of an afterthought. You know, because 2015, 2014, 15, 16, I was going through a rough patch, let's say. Uh, if you've ever been divorced, it's not easy. <laughs> and uh, trying to be happy and fun well, you can see I'm not, I guess I'm naturally happy and fun. I I don't feel happy and fun most of the time, <laughs> but I try. And it was really tough to, to just try and concentrate on anything other than not dying for a period of time. Um, so we were kind of, you know, inconsistent just because it's like, eh, I just don't have the bandwidth to do this. But, uh, you know, then... We we just got a little too heavy into the character stuff, and uh, everybody said that that was a mistake, and I didn't listen, um, but it was a lesson I had to learn, I guess. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, for the last year or so, we've really been going hard in putting a lot of research into stuff. I've, I've uh, f- put together this research team. It's like half a dozen people. There's 12 in there, half a dozen that are really active, Hody, Vaughn, Jacob, um, Zach, you know, these guys are, are putting in, uh, some amazing research and I think that I'm going to, I'm going to do more solo shows because I have the ability to do that. I don't have to do everything on my own. I'm not doing all the heavy lifting. I can do the presentation here and, uh, you know, Harry and I can, and chit chat on a few different stories. And then once a week, if, if things aren't lining up with a guest, then I can come at you with a solo show and uh, get you the information that way. And let's, let's try that for a while. As you know, We Are Libertarians is all about experimentation. We're always trying new things, always trying out different ways to... Uh, I just have a bunch of ideas. I love ideas. I love trying things out and seeing what works and keeping what works and throwing away what doesn't. Um, so we're, we'll try that out for a while. And we'll still have people on. We're not, you know... Uh, I'm I'm in talks with Rob Kendall. I have been for several weeks. Rob was supposed to come by last week. That didn't happen. I was supposed to do a show with a, a swamp episode. That didn't happen. And uh, you know, it just their life. People, people, their lives are are busy. And my life gets busy. So, um, but I want to be I want to be more consistent in shows and bonus content. And the, the dailies are going great. Um, love all the people, Sarah, um, and. Reinhold and uh, Hody. I'm sorry. There's too many cats happening around here. They're <laughs> they're fighting right as the show is starting. They're touching me. I'm just I'm listen. You two. I'm on edge enough. All right. I think I have their attention. I think they're going to listen to me. I think the cats are going to listen this time. Um, so. So yeah, we'll still do all the ensemble shows, still have people like Tad Western uh, by, but like James Neese was invited tonight and never heard anything. So not mad, um, <clears throat> not upset. You know, you invite James, you never know what you're going to get. So you could get uh, him eating out of a, tr- a dumpster in Florida content, or you could get a no show, no call. 
So um, so we'll see. Or he maybe he's watching this and show up in, in an hour. You never know. So uh, that's what we always like to keep you on your toes. So that's that's kind of where we're at. But um, I am I am I have to be honest. I'm having, you know, despite kind of that. I'm not as motivated, I guess, to have people show up because I'm having some of the best times I've had with We Are Libertarians reading and researching and studying and like the you know the the conversation that i'm having with you and then the questions that i'm having answered reading i I just i'm i'm having a great time actually like looking into all of the different things we're talking about i mean the world war one episode uh, i don't know if you enjoyed it but i think that that was probably the that is one of the ones that i'm most proud of uh it took an incredible amount of time and research Obviously, it was no Dan Carlin. I've I've since listened to Dan Carlin's Blueprint for Armageddon, which was art. <laughs> um, but I felt you know we covered it in a way that many people hadn't before, and uh, so I'm just really loving spending. I am I'm I'm off my phone as much. Uh, to be honest, I, I just kind of after getting banned and having those conversations that that you've been a part of. I just have sat there over the last month and looked at this phone and gone, why is this in my hand? This is doing nothing but pissing me off. <laughs> I'm learning nothing from being on Twitter or Facebook right now. Uh, I, I dip in and I participate in our Facebook group and I'm unbanned now. I am back. I have risen from the dead and uh, continue the conversation with uh, all of you guys. I tweet more than I post on Facebook. Um, but obviously this past week, conservatives finally figured out that things are, that they're being censored on, on, you know, I've told people from the, for a year now, a solid year, you go back and listen to my episode with Doug Carr, uh, that I did it, I think in like December of last year, that this was all coming, that it was going to hit libertarians first and conservatives, you better pay attention. And they didn't, they didn't stick up for, uh, Alex Jones. They didn't care. And now some, uh, his name's Jesse Kelly, gets banned, and now they're all up in arms. Well, maybe you should have paid attention when it was somebody who was unseemly, like Alex Jones. And that was what I was trying to say. Oh, property rights, property. Yes, property rights. But this is a trend that you have to fight as a consumer of these products, or else we're going to find our voice minimized in these spaces. And lo and behold, that's exactly what's happened. Um, Now... Uh, so conservatives, welcome. <laughs> You're exactly where libertarians have uh, known we were headed for the last year. Isn't that always the way? Conservatives always figure out way too late that libertarians were right. And I, so I just have been sitting here going, what is the virtue of this? I'm not having a good time. I'm getting, you know, I'm just irritated being on this thing. And so I put it down and I've been reading and the the, the World War One stuff just sparked like a massive, uh, I don't know what, but I've been reading two to four hours at night and have just renewed this passion of, over the last month for reading and uh, really, really, really enjoying myself and the intellectual side of this. Um, and... You know, thanks to the research team because it's great having a, a group of men and women who are who are out there researching the topics I'm interested in and, and getting into it themselves. I mean, Hody, uh, I mean, if you read the show notes, you know, the show prep that they put together, the show notes that I export for every episode, you read that PDF. Hody's on fire. 
Uh, he must have had some Sprite or something. He's Mormon, so he he can't have caffeine, but he must have had extra sugar. He was he was just outraged, as you'll as you'll hear why. Uh, <laughs> but I make this appeal to you, and I made it at the end of the last show. We are we are libertarians is blatantly stealing the value for value model from No Agenda. Uh, I have listened to No Agenda for roughly two months, and I've been greatly impressed with how they have their platform set up. And, uh, you know, they just say, hey, we do this podcast, and if you like this podcast, then give back to it. And so people have taken it upon themselves to put together different networks and different art and uh, merch and all kinds of different things connected to this podcast just as a way to uh, give value back to the podcast that they love. And several of you have contacted me, and uh, I have not responded to everybody, but I will. I promise you. Um, and I think everyone who responded to me and said, hey, uh, I get a lot of value out of this show, and I want to help. How can I help? And uh, I will I will work with you guys, but I also will say, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Uh, and I'm going to spend some time over the Christmas break putting together a couple things. So, like, the, the Liberty and Chill idea is a great idea. It, it absolutely nails what We Are Libertarians is about. Build a local community face-to-face, built on this thing, but then discovering that, oh, my liberal friends that I bring to Liberty and Chill are people too, and you have gr- these great conversations. And so we said, let's start Liberty and Chills. And then it got stuck on my desk and another volunteer's desk. I'm not going to call that person out. I mean, it's it is it's just like centralizing it is the bad idea. <laughs> like, let's put together a guide of how to start your own liberty and chill, and you guys run with it. Don't check for permission. Ask for forgiveness. Um, and I think that's sort of where I want to move this show, because the value for value model is a brilliant creation by Adam Curry and uh, John C. Dvorak, because they say, hey, we put a lot of time and effort into this. We give you a lot of good information. If you get a lot out of it, then give something back. If you if you don't have money, if you know, give money. Because obviously, money is how we keep this thing running. This is a very big network. This is a very big podcast, and I have a lot of bills. Uh, and I don't want to have to cut services. I want to fund some of these ideas that you guys have, and that's what the Patreon money goes towards. So if you become a patron. Just as in the, you become a patron of the arts. Back in the uh, medieval days, during the Renaissance, you you had uh, these families that would fund art, like Michelangelo or Machiavelli. If you look at the prince, it's it's uh, dedicated to the family that was his patrons, and they these rich people basically helped fund art. And that's what the Patreon is for. If if you get something out of this show, if you walk away learning something week in, week out, you walk away having a, a different perspective on the world, an aha moment, that's what we sell here. We sell information. We sell aha moments. We sell facts that you wouldn't get anywhere else. And if we do that for you consistently, then please uh, give it Patreon. But if you, listen, I want to give more or I don't have money. I can give time or resources. If you have a particular gift, someone uh, messaged me and said, I'm good at calligraphy. What can we do with that? I have no idea yet. (laughs) But we'll think of something. Um, So, you know, uh, Daniel started another social network. Uh, And so, you know, put it out there and people can populate that if they want. So 
you know, Harry started the Discord. There's two, three hundred people in there at this point. So that's that's the goal here is to create community around this podcast to to connect each one of you in many different ways and take me out of the equation. And, uh, you know, for most people, when you start a brand, you want to protect that brand. You want to get tight in on it and say, hey, don't steal my brand. Don't. But I think at this point, we're out there enough that uh, if anybody tried to blatantly rip us off or do something that was uncouth, then I think the community would is big enough to go, hey, that was started by these guys and uh, you're being a thief right now. <laughs> and that's, I think, the idea. I'm going to have... Uh, Stefan Kinsella on to explain IP to me. Uh, he wrote me a note saying, I don't know anything about IP, and he is 100% correct. I am a dum-dum when it comes to IP, and I, I hope to have him on soon to explain it to me. Um, but that is the value for Value Network. So if you get something out of this podcast, then give something. And as you give, then you will get back. And just as Harry said at the end of the last episode, you know, I am playing video games with four other wall listeners, and I wouldn't have those deep friendships with those people if I didn't have, if I hadn't engaged in the community. So start in the Facebook group. We'll start there. We'll milk that while it still exists. So wearelibertarians.com while you're there. Sign up for the email newsletter. Get the other podcasts. Check out everything that we're doing. Working on expanding Path to Libertarianism, the, our, our basically Libertarianism 101, Libertarianism for Normal People uh, guide. So check that out. Uh, so that is the value for Value Network. Enough with that pitch. Uh, please forgive me as uh, my my mouth is dry and, um, you know, <laughs> hold on just one moment. You know, I had a, a fun experience over the weekend. I played Santa Claus. Um, now... I play Santa Claus because I am not Santa Claus. I could never be the real Santa Claus. Uh, I believe in Santa Claus. I don't know why you people don't. Uh, as I told my niece, I, ha- having played Santa Claus, had to actually go to the North Pole and take training from Santa Claus. And when she found out that I knew him, she was so excited and immediately started telling me what a great uncle I was, how wonderful I am. <laughs> so I beat my brother for greatest uncle because I, I personally know Santa. And uh, so at the radio station here in Indianapolis, we have this beautiful thing called the circle. We have Monument Circle. And they string lights up to the top of it, and they make the world's largest Christmas tree. And the radio stations all have these little booths. And so what my station does is they have a Santa Claus that people can come and take photos and it's native advertising because uh, sponsors logos in the background. Um, but uh, it is I, every year I say I'm not going to do this. This is such a hassle and there's so much pressure to it because when you're representing the big guy, you don't understand the pressure that there is to represent the big guy. Uh, you know, when you're when you put on that red suit and, and, and maybe Christianity should feel this way for me. But when you put on the red suit, you are the you are the Santa Claus, and you have to take this very seriously because any move that might spoil Christmas for one of the little ones out there would be heartbreaking for me. I, I can't imagine that I would do something that would ruin Christmas. So I take it very very seriously. When you know that's one of the rules, have to you have to represent him very seriously, and it's a hundred two hundred kids, and. You have no idea 
what fame is until you pretend to be Santa Claus. <laughs> it is stunning. It is like, I, I, it, it just you're mobbed. People want a picture with you. But it, I guess it's like being Ben Bernanke when he goes to Congress because these children look at you and they really believe in what you're doing. <laughs> you know you're fake, <laughs> but they don't. And so, like, when I got in the car at the end and this little girl, she must have been three or four, was just across the sidewalk and she sees me and she just starts jumping up and down, waving her arms, screaming, Santa! And, of course, I've got to get out of the car. I've got to say hi to this little girl because Santa wouldn't just drive away because that's not, that's a dick move. Santa's very nice like that. And so I, I get out of the car and she runs and jumps into my arms and she's like, Santa, I love you so much sprints back starts jumping up and down i met him i met him it was amazing uh one little girl walked by he's real uh you just see so many uh kids that are just so excited and happy uh and and it really every year i'm like i'm not gonna do this i don't want the stress and then i do it and i'm just so glad that i did because it um really it's like that little connection to humanity (laughs) that of, of joy I guess joy is the part of the humanity that I, I, I don't see a lot of joy around me. Uh, I spend a lot of time with you people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so to see pure joy in the face of children really makes the holiday season. And uh, this this year, I'm in the shower on Thursday. Now, uh, we rent the suit. And so on Thursday, uh, the, the, the costume shop's closed. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Thursday, I'm in the shower, and guess what I forgot? <laughs> I forgot to pick up the suit. And so I immediately panic, uh, text the person that, at the station, ruin their Thanksgiving, ruin another salesperson's Thanksgiving, uh, then go to my Thanksgiving and ruin their Thanksgiving, and spend all damn day trying to figure out a solution. I call Hoosier Santas and, and talk to... Santa impersonators and line one of those up. We're looking online to buy a suit. I try to call the costume shop. We find a suit on uh, Craigslist. Um, my mom does. She ended up actually picking it up the next morning. She saved Christmas. And uh, then uh, then the costume shop called Friday and said, hey, we're going in anyways, so why don't you stop by? And they saved Christmas too. So I, I had no Santa suits, and then I had two Santa suits. And so now I actually am the proud owner of a Santa suit. So if you're into some sort of Santa fetish, I can make your dreams come true. Uh, I won't tell that story. (laughs) Adults say the dirtiest things to Santa. Uh, (laughs) You wouldn't believe what you hear when you're Santa Claus uh, from grown-ass adults. Uh, They're filthy. That's what they are. And uh, it's not very Christmassy like, that's for sure. Um, so yes, sorry, mittens. So 
I, I get it all worked out. I go and do this. And the thing that I've noticed over the last five years, and I, I wonder if you've noticed this too, those of you with kids, uh, and, and I asked one of the compatriots there, you know, hey, have you noticed this? And she said, yeah. When I first started, the belief in Santa started at eight. Like, it stopped at eight. People, kids up to eight were believing. Now it's like down to four. And it, so it's like belief in, in the big guy is definitely diminishing down to like four or five, which bums me out. Um, you know, now Rob Kendall pointed out maybe I'm just a bad pretender of Santa, uh, but and that could totally be true. But I do see a lot of people when I when I posted this. Hey, what are you guys seeing out there? A lot of people so quit lying to your children. Let me preface this. I'm I'm gonna go back and edit this, but let me preface this uh, as a parental warning of such about the big the big man in the suit. So maybe change the channel here. You know, I am not a parent, so I cannot speak to you as a parent. Uh, obviously, I am a vigorous defender of the truth, but I also appreciate a good story. And to me, th- I I want to tell you that there is at least one media outlet at least one libertarian in the world who thinks that it's okay to lie to your kids about Santa Claus. I, I, I want you to not feel alone in this struggle. And I know there are a lot of parents who are like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm having this, this, uh, this battle. I look at it as you, you read your kids' bedtime stories. They engage in fantasy all the time. And this is just another one of those fantasies where you have so much um truth and literalism and misery stuffed down your throat for so long as an adult that it letting your children engage in some wonder and some joy and some fantasy and story i don't know there's there's a connection to the old world in that 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 i find uh, appealing and we just don't get a lot of time to to believe in fairy tales as adults because we're so you know beat upside the head with reality that I don't mind uh, like I I don't harbor any kind of ill will against my parents in any way shape or form um I I certainly would read fairy tales to my uh children if I had them and I just don't get the the need to try and rush your children into adulthood because adulthood sucks. <laughs> you know, there's, there was a walkout at the local steak and shake here uh, that I saw, you know, every, every town has these chatter groups. You know, this one was Plainfield chatter where I grew up. Uh, and the locals, the talk of the town is that the steak and shake employees walked out and it's like, yeah, they, my mom's like, I can't believe these bums. I'm like, do you realize what it's like to be a steak and shake employee? the the economic pressure that you're under and it's not a matter of well just improve yourself and make your life better like there are some people that just they didn't they're that's not happening for them and you just have this sense that the man is constantly beating you down those of us who are white collar professionals of which i would include myself constantly just feel like just you're just you feel like that tunisian fruit vendor who started the arab spring one person, one bill collector calls and pushes you around for $200. And then the electric company does this for $50. And then you're, 
your mortgage company, your apartment complex does this, and then some people steal your tires, and then work, you know, insurance is going up another, and it's gone up 50% in four years, and it's just just this constant series of disappointments and provocations, and you go, yeah, I get it. I think we're headed to we're headed towards a, a reality that is is uh, really kind of a scary time. You know, when you when you look at the amount of unemployed men that already um, is not good, and then we're going to head to some say fifty percent unemployment for society. A lot of those in the trades. A lot of unemployed men who are violent, um, also provoked by um, a lot of the feminist rhetoric. I mean, I, I am all for equality, but I also want to make sure that we're keeping an eye on making sure that men don't feel like they're exclu- excluded from the conversation. We could be headed towards some really crummy times. So <laughs> the longer you can shield children from the harsh realities of the world and let them engage in some fairy tales and wonder and let them use their imagination. I, I just don't even remember what imagination is like. And I'm work, I work in the creative arts. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I'm just around libertarians too much and I just have become too literal and surrounded by literalism. But uh, I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, post it in the Facebook group or in the Discord or send me an email at editor at weirdlibertarians.com. Love to hear your perspective. Um, you know... We spend a lot of time, I guess I shouldn't say that, we spend a lot of time talking about fairy tales on this program, mainly the kind that have been concocted about government. And wildfire management is certainly one of those fairy tales. Uh, You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm not outdoorsy. I'm not known for spending time in the woods. I've never fought a fire. Uh, I have, I have uh, n- not d- dug a trench in many, many, many years. Um, so I am. Uh, see, it already starting. Rotary Engine Pete in the comments on the on the uh, private YouTube because Santa has nothing to do with Christianity. See, you just can't. I don't know what that means, Rotary Engine Pete. But let people have fun. Also. I, I, you know, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. You can say both now. Uh, uh, so back to back to wildfires. But my point is fantasies that I tell myself. Uh, I tell myself that I'm very tough and rugged. Uh, I worked at a hardware store in high school. I worked at a garden center in college. I have built many things with my hands. I was a janitor, not just a janitor, but doing construction cleanup for the better part of for all of my 20s. I've done some manly things. In fact, I dumped a sweeping compound on a construction site on the top of my head three weeks ago, uh, but still not manly enough to fight a fire in the in the California wilderness. Uh, so I knew nothing about fighting them. Oh, oh, you say because you said adults say dirty things to Santa wasn't Christian. You're right. <laughs> some of those things were not Christian. One lady, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to get into it. But I don't know anything about wildfire management. Uh, and so we had to do a lot of research on this show uh, because the researchers, I ironically, had never fought fire either. Uh, but it was a big topic this past weekend. And so there was a lot of curiosity amongst us where we were going, you know, 
there's this big topic of wildfires. How do they fight the fires? You know, what, why, do these, why are these spreading? What is happening? What is causing them? You know, so we go into these topics completely ill-informed looking for answers. And you never, you never like, obviously we're biased against the government, but you never like go straight uh, towards, well, just you, you want to like have a, a balanced approach to these things, right? You don't want to just go directly to Mises.org and only use Mises.org as your reference. You kind of want to balance all the information and find out what the truth is, right? And it never fails that when you actually look up the facts on any of these issues, it's the government's fault. Um, but it, it, and you will see that by the end of this, you will go, I don't get why we keep doing these dumb things. And, and it's just the same every week. So let's start with the actual definition of a wildfire. Let's get real specific on this stuff. Uh, the definition of a wildfire, courtesy of our friends at Wikipedia, a wildfire or a wildland fire is a fire in an area of combustible vegetation occurring in rural areas Depending on the type of vegetation present, a wildfire could mean vegetable bushes, a vegetation fire, a veld fire, which is uh, grassland in South Africa, forest fire, grass fire, hill fire, peat fire. So any kind of rural area. Uh, so the causes for a wildfire. So let me explain to you how fire is made. <laughs> for those of you who failed physics or chemistry, whichever it is. Uh, so you have to have three elements called the fire triangle for fire to actually be created. You have to have an ignition source. So you've got to have the lighter that you flick the bick and it, and it starts the ignition source, that initial spark. You've got to have combustible material. You've got to have, you know, your, your, uh, your tinder, your newspaper there to, to combust, to grab onto that fire and actually turn it into fire. And then you've got to have oxygen. You've got to have plenty of oxygen for this to uh, take place. So the ignition sources of forest fires really are kind of as you would expect. You know, intentional acts of arson, um, negligence, meaning thrown out cigarettes, uh, unattended campfires, or they could just be plain old accidental, like the burning of debris that gets out of control or sparks from vehicles or power lines. Um, you know, and then they could also be natural, like lava. Uh, did you know that lava actually causes uh, a lot of wildfires? Probably, especially in where our friend Craig DeCosta is from in the in the country of Hawaii, uh, in a land land far away, full of coconuts and uh, macadamia nuts. Uh, so, lightning is obviously a big cause of a lot of these wildfires. Spontaneous combustion of dry materials like sawdust and dry leaves. No idea how that happens, but it does happen. And it is an actual source. So the combustible material, a lot of times in many of these wildfires, are the, the dry materials available in the area. The dead wood, the leaves, sawdust from down trees, dry dead grass, vegetation. It, it, these are the places where it starts, where it's easy to start. Um, and it, it is especially in places where you have dry summers, like a lot of California, uh, you know, even up into Montana and Idaho or Florida. Or Texas, um, you know, you can even have wildfires in wetter places like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, or Michigan. Actually, the most deadly wildfire, the deadliest fire in the United States, was in uh, I think it's 1871 in um, Wisconsin, 
uh, I think we talked about it, and and it was it was actually started the same day as the Great Chicago Fire, but you know that burned three acres of land in in an urban area and got all the coverage. We still remember Mrs. O'Leary's cow, but this fire that burned in Michigan that killed fifteen hundred people burned a very large portion of the state, kind of up towards Green Bay. Um, so how does it actually spread? So, and then obviously high winds bringing the oxygen, it makes wildfires worse because the, the high winds make it easier to spread the fire because you're, you're moving that combustible material in the wind to, to another area, but it also feeds that oxygen. Think of like when you're, when your dad built a fire in the fireplace as kids and he would go, and then all of a sudden the flames would kind of burst out. Um, so part of what really makes these spread is when there's a slope, and this is from the BBC, uh, so when there's a slope going upwards at a 10% gradient, that would double the speed of the fire. If it's a 20%, it would quadruple the, the speed of, of a fire. Uh, that's because it's preheating the fuel above it. So if a fire is going up a mountain, it, it's going to go really fast. So think of heat rising. And so if it's spreading up a hill, then it's kind of baking and drying out all of the material that's above it. So the higher of a mountain slope that you have, the faster that this can spread. And uh, fuel includes everything from trees, underbrush, dry, grassy fields to homes. And the more fuel there is, obviously, the more violently it will burn. And California, as we all know, has been very, very, very dry and has a water crisis on its hands. And that makes the fires much more difficult to control because there's less wetness. So let's actually go back before we kind of get into what we can do about these wildfires. What is the history of wildfire management? And and I know you never um, think that you'd hear on a podcast that's trying to entertain you. Let's talk about the history of wildfire management. (laughs) As I'm reading this, I'm going, oh boy, I got to tell these research to spice it up. But it is kind of an interesting thing. It is because it goes back to what we talked about with World War I. And what you realize, I'm really like in depth in studying the progressive area because it just is like the beginning of all of our problems. Like Woodrow Wilson is just the the cancer that metastasized through FDR and LBJ and Barack Obama. Like he is just... He is patient zero for the growth of government. Um, But the original carrier was Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, he plays a big role in this. Um, So so conservationists like Frank Muir and Franklin Howe uh, always championed a a forestry service and setting aside some land. Uh, and, And really after the Civil War, but especially picking up in the 1880s, you start to see calls for preservation of land because they had they had looked at places uh, in in England, for instance, where they had deforested. I'm I'm reading a book about the Luddites, which I'll explain some on some other show. Which you know, at the beginning of the uh, Industrial Revolution in England, the Luddites in uh, went through and just smashed all the knitting machines because it was uh, causing all of their ills and. You know, you, you read as early as the 1600s, there's just no forest left. And so they, they have deforested most of, of everything. And so the, these guys who love the outdoors, who love going hunting, who, who are part of the elite of that time, of the antebellum era and the progressive era, they want to preserve nature 
and Teddy Roosevelt bonds with many of these guys because he's an outdoorsman as well, and uh, so they start to set up the national parks and national forests. The difference between a national park and a national forest, I don't know if you know this, but a park is actually curated, a park is taken care of, it's, it's, it's meticulously planned. Um, a national forest is just, they leave it alone. It's a forestry, you can go and hunt, you can do, it's more of a common area than a park where there's much more stricter rules. Uh, so after there were massive fires in the late 1800s, as we mentioned, 1871, that uh, that big fire. Let me actually look up the name of that. Um, yes, and while I do, I, I say apologies to Pete. I did not mean to call him out. I uh, doing this solo, I have to think and talk at the same time, and it's hard enough for me to do one or the other, as many of you listeners know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's see, uh, you know, uh, the Pestigo fire in 1871, um, that, that was, that killed 1500 people up in Wisconsin. Uh, and so that threatened future commercial timber supplies because it burned these massive, uh, timber yards. And so these people who, worked in these timber mills and cut down trees and then, you know, milled them. They they obviously were working in a powder keg. And you have to understand, people in this era were deathly afraid of fires. Why? Because everything that they lived and worked in was wood. You know, I mean, there is, you don't realize how lucky you are to live in the 20th century till you study the past. You have to realize everything that people were living in was either wood or thatch you know if you're in england you have thatch roofs you know you're living in palm tree huts (laughs) if you're in southern parts of of the country or the world you know so everything's very combustible it's this wood think about a wood pile you chop the wood and you can't use it till the next year when it's dried out so you're talking about log cabins that are very dry um, buildings and towns that are very dry you you have even into the the progressive area in the early 1900s, you have towns like Baltimore burned completely, you know, not completely to the ground. Chicago burned completely to the ground, but uh, Baltimore, good portion of it burned. Indianapolis had a major fire. Every city, you look back in your past, you you had major fires because everything's made of wood. So people are terrified of, of fire. And the other aspect is that this is the last piece of the West of the territories that man has not conquered. And, uh, you know, at this point, wolves are, are mostly gone. You have the grizzly is tamed, even in places like Wisconsin and, and uh, Montana. Man has really conquered the elements with the exception of fire. So fire presents the last existential threat in their mind. Uh, so it, it, it has a, it really is in some ways like nuclear war or terrorism for the people of this time. You know, and that and that it is our existential threat and uh, it is something that the media can use to get eyeballs and get our attention. And so they they the media just really drums up from the great Chicago fire and and this uh, companion fire in Wisconsin that kills 1500 people. They really start drumming this up. And so there becomes an outcry that is a snowball ever since uh, because people are terrified of it. So in. 1905, the U.S. Forest Service was established. It was given managerial control over what we now know as National Forest, and 
uh, thanks to Jacob for this research, Vaughn for the for the for the definitions, I should say as well. Um, the prevention of wildfires fell under the managerial scope of the U.S. Forest Service. The first major test of the agency came five years after its inception in 1910 in what became known as the Big Blowup. Goes by many different names, but it burned three million acres across Montana, Idaho, and Washington in just a few days. And and when we say a few days, like two days, it burned three million acres. So you're talking about a tremendous fire in an area that depends economically a lot on on wood. Um, so the big blow-up was no exception. Administrators with the Forest Services blamed the devastation on not having enough men and equipment on hand. Imagine that. So the big blow-up was big enough to convince members of Congress and the public that total fire suppression could prevent a reoccurrence of a similar type. So they're arguing that they can stop forest fires. Now, this is an era when they think that they can do anything, and obviously they can't. They, they, uh, they think that they can socially engineer people. They can, they can manage all of nature. And so the, this idea that the U.S. government is, so, is growing and man is so powerful and technology is growing that they can manage fire, forest fires and put them out starts to crop up. Um, to further push this agenda, you have, uh, as the Forest Service chiefs from 1920 to 1938, three men who actually served in the fight against the big blow-up. So until you know near 1940, so that's a span of 30 years, you have people who were very involved in the fires in Montana. Uh, so the three of them assisted in instituting a policy of total fire suppression. Total fire suppression policy had two goals, prevent fires and suppress fires as fast as possible once they began. So this is the beginning of where bad policy starts to negatively affect local people and society at large. Uh, so the Forest Service immediately starts opposing the practice of light burning even though ranchers, farmers, and timbermen favored it as it improved their land conditions. So what that means is that fire is actually really good for nature. Fire has existed as a, as a cleansing agent for since the beginning of time. And so, you know, these people just start to do what they have always done as ranchers, as farmers, as timbermen. And these rangers, for the first time in human, you know, in American history, start coming along and saying, no, you can't do that. You can't go into this forest and you can't log or you can't burn or you can't do this or that. And the, the, there was a lot of tension between the park rangers and the, uh, the people who used this as just the, the place where they worked. <laughs> because all of a sudden the government had declared that they had, uh, they had the control over this space. I couldn't think of Dominion. Uh, so this is the beginning of where the wildfire paradox starts to take hold in the U.S. Now, what is the wildfire paradox? This is still being debated today for some insane reason, as you will see. Uh, it states that attempts to exclude fire from systems that evolved with frequent fire will, some in some cases, simply amplified feedbacks that increase long-term risks. So in other words, fire existed a long time. You try to outlaw fire, fire comes back and says, I, this is my, uh, I will make you my bitch. That's uh, what fire says. So 
The Forest Service didn't take this into account and simply argued that all fire in wooded areas was bad and it destroyed standing timber, as it destroyed the standing timber. So they said because it kills the trees that are in existence, uh, we can't have these regular burns. So it was around this time in 1944 when you get Smokey the Bear as a way to spearhead the message. Still gets millions of dollars. Um, So... With regard to the second goal of the program, fighting fires, the Forest Service had to develop a systematic approach. At the beginning, it meant the construction of roads, communication systems, and ranger stations to protect and oversee the federal and non-federal lands. One of the problems in the Big Burn is that they didn't have a lot of roads to get to the fire. And so, you know, roads were important, more roads. Uh, were important in being built. So the framework would later provide in private forest associations and landowners as well. And like all federal government programs, financial incentives were offered to states to fight fires. The National Fire Policy was born out of these financial incentives. Several fires continued to arise in the early 30s, which only further bolstered the appetite for fire suppression. Out of these fires, the federal government created the Civilian Conservation Corps in 1933. Uh, the Great Depression, so they're throwing money at anything like the WPA, the Workers, uh, you know, Project Association, and trying to use Keynesian economics that if we have the government pay people, then people are working and the the economy will quickly recover. And that was a lie. This put thousands of men to work as they created fire breaks and fought fires. The campaign to eliminate fire from the landscape quickly took hold and was aided by new technologies such as airplanes and fire suppressant chemicals. These advances in technology increased the operational reach and effectiveness of the government agencies to fight fires, and they could be fought almost anywhere, and the government did not hold back. So they start throwing money at everything. The obsession with controlling large fires continued into the 70s, but during the 60s, scientific research began to demonstrate the important role. So in the 60s, comes along, you know, you have... Rachel Carson and environmentalism starts to pop up and starts to say, no, this is the, the way of nature. These fires are actually very good for things. And so we're going to do some research and actually show you that fire is important. And by actually suppressing fire, then you're making them worse. And they start to show the Forest Service's policymakers uh, that they're wrong. And so they put so much pressure on them that they start a let burn policy in the 1970s, and it has evolved numerous times since then, as government policy usually does. But in 1988, there was a massive fire in the Yellowstone National Park, uh, and it's the largest fire in the park's history. Um, so while the size and scope of wildfires in the U.S. in some areas were decreasing slightly due to the let burn policy, Yellowstone had not had a fire in many years. And so it was It was a massive fire, uh, and the public was just horrified that their nature reserve, that their retreat had burned, and why didn't you stop this? And anytime there's a crisis, we need the government to solve this problem. And then the government tries to solve the problem, and then they make it worse. How many times, how many different ways do we have to do this the same story in, <laughs> on this program? Problem? In, in the media, we need government solution. Government solution implemented. Problem gets worse. We need another solution. See healthcare for your best example currently. Um, 
So another note about the Yellowstone fire is that the the wildlife sprang back up very quickly. And if there had been any kind of coverage or if people had paid attention afterwards, they would have seen the revegetation in Yellowstone very quickly. Uh, another day in uh, fire wildfire prevention history was July 2nd, 1994 in the South Canyon fire which was caused by a lightning strike in Colorado. Over the course of several days, the fire grew in, in size, and the, the Forest Service just didn't do anything for three days after it started, and that just made everything worse. Um, and so they, they sent in crews. They had uh, 10 Prineville in, interagency hotshot crew members and nine smoke jumpers creating a fire line to prevent the fire from spreading into the town of Canyon Creek. It enveloped them, and those 12 firefighters, uh, 12 firefighters ended up perishing. And uh, in a different location, two others perished as well. So anytime a loss of life happens, people start to, to really pay attention. And so while the fires were the cause of death, the poor management of the resources and personnel on the ground contributed greatly to the firefighters' demise. This only highlights that national policies and government agencies have real ramifications so had these these men would be alive had there been better procedures in place by the government. The Forest Service only followed part of their own philosophy. They let it burn. However, they did not establish containment, do a controlled burn, or thin out the timber in the area, which is the other more important half of the let it burn philosophy. So in the last 25 years, fires have continued to grow in size and ferocity, which has led to firefighting absorbing 50% of the Forest Service budget. So that means that less funds are available for land management. And, and as you're going to see, it's the most crucial part, but it's also very expensive to do. Uh, so they, they also spend a ton of money on regenerating these forests. So part of the rise in cost is also the resu- result of new technologies. So as new, th- new technologies and new flame retardants become available, costs for fighting these fires also go up. Um, as our researcher Jacob writes, uh, it is similar to how we fight terrorism, I suppose. We fight and destroy ever-increasing threats as they arise without fully understanding the underlying reasons as to why they continue to come up in ever-increasing strength in the first place. Our policies, both past and present, have created an environment in which these issues will continue to grow and affect the lives and personal property of us as citizens of the United States. We are living in a time where we are dealing with the effects of blowback. Whether it is wildfires or terrorism, we must understand that throwing money and resources at the symptoms of the problem are not feasible as long-term solutions. We must look to address the root cause of the issues we face as a country. At a minimum, our personal property is at stake. At worst, we are putting people's lives in danger. I think that's a very salient point that uh, we are living with 100 years of government central planning here in America, and we can't figure out why is wage, why are wages not growing? Why is inflation rising? Why is health care uh, costs? Why are they increasing? Why are wildfires getting worse? You know, we're told it's climate change, but it's not climate change. It's bad government policy. In our present day, the Forest Service is attempting to address the wildfire paradox earlier. So they are actually trying to um, change their ways. So they're doing more let burn policies. Uh, and um, 
introducing more fires. We still need to do more, and our social and managerial culture must change. There's actually a document in the show prep um, called Rethinking the Wildland Fire Management System, the Society of American Foresters. And, you know, this whole document, it's it's written like... Um, it's written like any other government agency document. It's full of words and, uh, you know, like changing responses to unplanned ignitions provides a largely untapped but important, if not essential, opportunity to restore landscape conditions and reduce future risks. Effectuating this change in fire manager behavior is challenging because ambiguity and incomplete information surround issues of responder safety, suppression, effectiveness and performance. We propose that by more rigorously researching suppression actions and refocusing on evidence rather than intuition as the basics for management decisions, the U.S. Forest Service could better understand and improve the quality of its management operations. Now, what this is saying in all of these fancy words is that the management of the United States Forest Service is the problem, and if they didn't pull their head out of their butts, then we wouldn't have as many forest fires. And again, this is by the Society of American Foresters. So uh, allow me to translate. Stop doing dumb things. Because you have three parts to fire management. You have the social system. You have fire-adapted communities. You have to build communities uh, in, Col- in the West, essentially, that can withstand fire. You know, we live, we don't live in wood houses anymore. I'm in a an apartment building right now with many different tools to fight a fire, be it a fire extinguisher or uh, I don't think there's a sprinkler system in here, uh, fire alarms, fire retardant uh, uh, posts. So there are many, many different uh, ways for there to be fire suppression in this particular place. So you build a social system along those lines. Uh, then you have to have a good ecosystem. That's what we're talking about. You have to have those controlled burns. You have to go in and, you know, Trump g- got raked over the coals for mentioning fire raking, but he's absolutely right. The problem with Donald Trump is that Donald Trump is every single caller to the radio talk show, uh, the talk radio show that I produced for in 2004. Uh, he he has heard facts from talk radio and Fox News, and they seem right, but he doesn't really understand kind of the things that we're telling you here. Um, but he has he has heard an alternative theory but doesn't quite know how to articulate it. So just rake the forests. And then he gets mocked for it because he sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. But he shouldn't have been mocked because he's right. <laughs> he's absolutely right that the federal government is the cause that many of... They're not the cause of the fires. They're the cause of the fires being so massive. Uh, it isn't... It isn't just climate change as, as, you know, Jerry Brown says, this is just the new normal in California thanks to climate change, so we need to pass regulations. No, you dumb dumb. You need to actually have a better forest policy, a better land management policy, because it has real-life consequences for people. And then third, you have to have a fire management system. You have to have good plans in response, because the negative outcomes... you know, are very, very massive here. And, um, you know, you, we see these massive events. It's like the tip of an iceberg. We see these massive events take place, but we don't realize underneath all these massive events, how many different factors are leading up to that. How are they actually handled now? Um, uh, you know, and, and this may be a good time to actually go into, the money aspect, just a couple of facts and figures 
Um, you know, this is from Wired.com. We know exactly how to stop wildfires with money. Adam Rogers writes, Since a particularly rough fire season in 1910, the U.S. Forest Service and the agencies that work with it have tried to put out every wildfire that erupts. They succeeded with almost all of them, but the fires that get away can turn into med- deadly massive conflagrations. Meanwhile, the Forest Service and Department of the Interior have regularly blown through their suppression budgets for 15 years in a row. In 1998, the Fed spent about $428 million, corrected for inflation, on fire suppression and 1.3 million acres burned. In 2018, they spent almost $3 billion and 10 million acres burned. So... Nineteen ninety eight, four hundred twenty eight million to three billion with a B. One point three burned, ten million burned. So it's the the increase in the budget is not doing anything. It's actually making things worse. Um, <clears throat> so they uh, they they almost all go towards fire suppression. So going through an active management in in these forests can go, uh, you know, let's see, done right, it can cost quite a bit of money. Management by prescribed fire costs anywhere between 10 and 250 an acre. Um, According to the Forest Service National Fuels Program Manager, mechanical thinning, people with saws, can cost up to 2000 an acre. Others say it can be 3000 per acre. The federal government owns 640 million acres of land. The state's own land, too. The chief of the U.S. Forest Service often says in speeches that 80 million acres of the land of his agency alone is responsible, that they're responsible for, is at risk of insect infestation, disease, or wildfire. 80 million acres. And when you have $3,000 to manage an acre that's that that math is uh, not good but you know then you have the fires the northern california fire last year 854 million in losses and killed nine people uh, california incurred 17 billion in damages from fire last year and had two more than two million homes exposed to fire danger more so in the so-called wildland urban air interface where human habitation rubs up against nature that's one state so um Wildland fires in the U.S. cost anywhere from 500 to 1500 per hectare, uh, hectare, however you say that. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, these are very costly. It's costly to manage, and it's costly to, uh, it's costly if you don't manage it, and it's costly if you do manage it. So, so how do they, how do they actually fight the fires? Um, and, and we'll give you a solution for those costs in, in, a, in a bit. So, towards the end here. We get to the solutions part. So how to fire how do they actually fight the fire? This is from Mental Floss, 10 strategies firefighters use to fight wildfires. A uh, control line is kind of the main thing, and that is basically a line that they clear. So, you know, when when they say a hundred percent contain, like the fire is almost a hundred percent contain the, the campfire. And so what that means is that they've got a, a control line around the fire and they've cleared all the brush. Uh, they have a rocky ridge or a river can be a control line. Firefighters uh, can establish a man-made one by clearing out an extended line of brush. A fire line is scraped down to the mineral soil. A scratch line is preliminary line in a hurry. And a wet line is where they have flame retardant or water applied. Um, so number two is they burn. It's something called burning out. 
So when establishing control lines, digging a small ditch and pulling up some plants isn't always enough. So they create a sturdy fuel-free barrier. Firefighters may use small torches to burn the brush in, just inside the control line. And so that way, leading up to it, there's not a lot of fuel leading up to that control line. A backburn is kind of similar to that. It's a controlled blaze downwind to the main fire just on just on the inside of the control line. And then they push the new blaze back towards the main fire, burning up all the fuel that lies between the fire and the control line. Another technique that they use is called flanking. Uh, for a wildfire small enough to be snuffed out using a direct attack, firefighters may begin their assault on the blaze from behind. Starting from already burned earth, the firefighters will typically work their way around the edge of the fire to spray the flames as they make their way around the entire perimeter. Hot spotting is a term used uh, to describe to give extra attention to the most active and dangerous portions of the wildfire. A knockdown, whereas hot spotting refers to the assessment of a fire's condition, knocking down is all about action. The knockdown strategy is employed when firefighters decide that a certain hot spot needs to be suppressed immediately. Uh, to diminish the section of a fire deemed to have grown too hot, too active, or too large, firefighters directly apply some combination of dirt, water, or retardant to that section. Um, cold trailing. While a fire is being attacked from the front or side, other firefighters may be involved in cold trailing, um, where they come, they're come they combing through already scorched earth in the wake of a moving wildfire. The point is to make sure no hot or glowing embers remain so it can't actually be blown around and create new fires. There's the aerial attack, which we all have seen with the dropping of water. There's fireline explosives. This is the job that I'd want uh, if I were doing this. When setting control lines or fire lines, firefighters may even use explosives to break up dense brush or fallen trees. Explosives can also be used to fell trees whose spread might help a fire jump across a control line. And then last, the mop-up. They go back and clean up along a completed control line. Uh, it consists of dousing any embers and making sure that that fire does not spread. So that is how they actually fight the fire. Uh, so a little bit more about how things are handled on the policy side. This is where you're going to start to get mad. So in the 60s, uh, believe it or not, the Forest Service is under the USDA, uh, no longer the EPA. It is under the USDA now, and uh, they they write... Policy began to be questioned in the 60s when it realized that no new giant sequoia had grown in the forest of California because fire is an essential part of their life cycle. So in the 60s, people started to notice that, notice that those northern counter the sequoias are like the major trees that you drive through. They weren't growing. <laughs> so they were like, oh, maybe the fire's important. So, so that's when they really started to change. That was the catalyst for the change that we mentioned earlier where they started um, you know, going through and burning, doing controlled burns. And the USD actually has removed that from their website, but it has been kept. You know, we, we may surmise that uh, money flowing for these activities while hiding how the funds are supposed to be spent from the public might be the reason. Um, so let's take a look at how the U.S. Forest Service actually does in its, per in its performance since modern ecological policy on wildfires changed, there have been many major fires. And many, many, many different people predicted this. Uh, however, the loss of valuable land and human lives were not part of the plan. Um, in 2003, Federal Wildland Fire Management said that all major cases need 
needed uh, needed strengthening and improvement, even by their own standards. So that's the government saying, eh, we may need to strengthen and improve some of what we do. Uh, they they said, uh, the USDA said, since 2000, for example, at least 13 states have had their largest fires on record, and some have had their records broken more than once. Forest Service scientists predict that fire seasons could return to levels not seen since the 1940s, reaching 12 to 15 million acres annually. So, so they're they're claiming they're looking at it going. Okay, we're in charge of these wildfires. They're getting worse. Um, I'm sure that the next part of their report might be their own incompetence and um, you know writing the wrongs and having an action plan to make sure that the bureaucracy starts to fix the problem. They want more money. <laughs> they say that alleviate the problem will be alleviated with more money. So in the same report, they write, um, actions range from fostering resilient ecosystems by restoring the natural role of wildland fire as an ecological process. Uh, see these government reports; they never make any any sense whatsoever. Uh, so th- they basically ask for more money so they can foster resilient ecosystems uh, by restoring their natural role. So in the spending report, they did not spend a single cent on controlled burns or thinning out trees. Um, their own analysis established that wildfires are actually a natural part of the ecosystem, so it's better to thin out forests and do controlled burns. When areas become too risky, so they acknowledge the fact that they have taken none of their own advice and they want more money. So the majority of the $4.9 billion set aside for suppressing fires is spent on payroll, commissioning helicopters, and establishing water tanks in remote areas. Um, They use them for methods when there's already a disaster, not limiting the fire in any way, and not doing any controlled burns. Um, so there's more money actually spent on planting trees after the fires than there are removing any, which would actually make them uh, more responsible for causing the fires than actually preventing or reducing the damages of fire. So let me repeat. The thing that would stop wildfires is removing dead trees. The thing that they do is plant more trees. Okay, the fact that we don't allow logging in many of these locations anymore is a huge reason that there are more wildfires. And so we're planting more trees. Okay. Um, so it has 10,000, the um, Forest Service has 10,000 permanent and full-time wildfire firefighters. Um, so, but the majority of the work is actually shouldered by local fire departments. It's shouldered by uh, volunteers and even prisoners. Um, so yeah, the California, this is according to CNBC, California is paying inmates $1 an hour to fight firefighters. And this goes back to the big burn that I told you about. They actually released prisoners from, uh, all of their prison cells in Montana, murderers, anybody, you know, they, some of these guys were fighting fires with, uh, their shackles still on. Um, prisoners have been used to fight fires, uh, for a long time. Um, so they're getting paid a dollar an hour. They don't actually get the money. It goes to pay for their incarceration. Um, but they are offering time off in some cases as long as they don't die. So they have that going for them. Uh, California DOC says that uh, there are 2,000 felons fighting in the fire, and all were pre-screened. 
of two things. So if you're in California, you can be comforted knowing that, listen, 2,000 felons are fighting the fire, and there are two things that are true about them. The first is that they are not a danger to the public, they are not a flight risk, and they're ready to rejoin society. Okay, so why are they there? And the second is that their crimes were victimless. Um, now, Hody, our researcher, says, don't be surprised that they could find 2,000 of uh, these felons who committed victimless crimes because 86% of the population uh, in prison are there for victimless crimes. In what could be the cruelest twist in California, people with prior felony may not be employed as firefighters. So despite fighting California's largest fires, inmates are denied licenses. They need to become firefighters after they get out. So uh, they have experience in prison firing, fighting fires, and because of their felonies for victimless crimes, they can't work as firefighters after they get out. So, so yeah, that, uh, that's... Um, it's rough. So uh, let's see here. Uh, no, 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 no. So let me give you a summation of of the government's performance, and this comes from a libertarian leaning think tank, Property and Environment. The Allison Berry writes at the Property and Environment Research Center. For most of the 20th century, U.S. federal fire policy focused on suppressing all fires on national forests. The goal was to protect timber resources and rural communities, but this policy ignored the ecological importance of fire. North American forests have evolved with fire for thousands of years. Fire returns nutrients to soils, encourages growth of older fire-resistant trees, and promotes establishment of seedlings. Decades of fire, fire exclusion have produced uncharacteristically dense forests in many areas. Some forests, which previously burned lightly every 15 to 30 years, are now choked with vegetation. If ignited, these forests erupt into conflagrations of much higher intensity than historic levels. Grasses, shrubs, and saplings in the understory now form a fuel ladder through which flames can climb to the forest canopy, killing entire forest stands. The fire problem is exacerbated by decreasing federal timber harvest since the late 1980s. In the absence of fire and with the reduced timber harvest and thinning, numerous small diameter trees have proliferated. Stressed trees compete for scarce water, sunlight, and growing space. So, long story short, the government tried to help and they made everything worse. So, how do we fix it? Um... <laughs> Well, the answer is get rid of government. Uh, but let's let's hear how. Let's hear some specifics. Uh, so, thank you to Hody for the previous research, and now Zach Ripple, Hody Johns, now Zach Ripple for uh, for some of the solutions. Um, so, can our fire services, more specifically wildland and firefighting services, be sourced to private companies? Yes. I had to hiccup there, but the answer is yes. Uh, in fact, it is already being done throughout much of modern history. It, it was done through most of modern history. And, and so what, here's what you have to remember about society today. Is that much of, m much of like what you see is new in human history. You have to keep reminding yourself that the technology that you see on a daily basis... 
That didn't exist before 100 years ago. Toilet paper, I say all the time, to remind you how good you have it in the 21st century, is less than 100 years old. You know, I mean, people were wiping their butts with corn cobs during the First World War. Uh, and that was only 100 years ago. So it wasn't until the 20s when, when you really started to see toilet paper start to be spread throughout the United States. So the uh, the reality is that the technological world that you see before you is not something that most of human history has had. And so the answer is, how did we survive that? Like, today is the... Uh, it's I think it was 1927 on this day in history the first uh, hairstylist license the first beautician's license was issued in New York and I just tweeted in reply to that how did people cut hair before that <laughs> how could people possibly cut hair for all of human history before 1927 without a, a government permit so just because the government has has placed itself as some sort of authority over something, it doesn't mean that that particular thing will not exist in a society without government or with very limited government. Uh, and fire protection is one of those things. And, you know, if you look at the history in medieval France, for instance, uh, the get bourgeois, oh man, did I butcher that, the get bourgeois, or the bourgeois, bourgeoisie watch, was established to watch over Paris, separate from the king's personal watch service, and so the the citizens just took turns watching over the property that they all owned, uh, if they owned property, or just watching the city a, as a whole, and many of these were utilized by elite merchants and craft guilds. Uh, to watch over their property. And as more people moved to the city, these decentralized services began to falter. Uh, and so the the government took over those responsibilities. Um, so, but then in the 17th century, we see the birth of insurance. So private citizens are just kind of going, eh, I'm not going to go do the watch tonight, kind of breaks down. But then government not government but human ingenuity and specifically profit motive within human ingenuity says well, maybe there's a better way so they come up with insurance and insurance companies began in london which had been destroyed by fire four times the most recent occasion being the fire of 1666 uh, so they were very aware of the risk of of fires and so um, risk assessment is the modus operandi of the insurance companies. These companies begin establishing private fire brigades. Uh, the private fire brigades would put out flames at buildings uh, insured only by the company, which was marked in some way. Um, you know, if you think about like the gangs of New York, you see all the, the different fire companies rushing up because they the incentive structure was perverse, and so you only got paid if you put out the fire. So you had guys show up and start fighting each other to put out the fire so they could get paid. Um, but that you see this in action today. The California wildfires that, fires that just took place, Kanye West saved his entire neighborhood um, because he hired a, fire, a private fire service to protect it, the neighborhood. And it was actually, um, it was carried out successfully. The homes were saved. They probably would have burned without this, um, this insurance. And the state forestry services couldn't actually protect, nor did they have a mandate to protect your home. What we found out, much like when my tires got stolen, the police have no, no duty to protect you constitutionally. 
The uh, fire services have no con- no duty to protect your home. They do their best, but they actually are there to protect the forest. They're not there to protect you. Um, and so, you know, Kanye West got absolute. I just saw on um, my Mac come across another story. Let's actually see what that was. Um, uh, Kim Kardashian West hired private fire crews to save her home, but more than just the ultra-rich take advantage of the service. Yeah, and it's because insurance companies are the ones that are actually, um, they're they're on the payroll of the insurance company. The insurance company is the one hiring the private fire services. And uh, so they're included in a package that guarantees they will protect a home or building in the event of a fire, in this case, wildland fires. So they subcontract the fire crews, and instead of them being directly employed, uh, for instance, AIG's Wildland Protection Unit uses a Montana company called the Wildlife Def- Wildfire Defense Systems, so which protects almost 1,000 homes. So if you have AIG home insurance, this company, think of it like Blackwater, but for fires, Will will guarantee to protect your home from wildfires. So the, there is profit in it, which allows the companies to grow and expand their servants services. The more profit it, that is being made from these services, the more people that will rush in and try to start their own company, which increases competition, which lowers prices, which then means more service for a lower price, more protection across the board. Voila, and it's effective. Um. So, you know, it, it's received some criticism. Firefighting is a public good, not a commodity. But let's look at the big, bigger picture. California is growing to the point where there aren't enough places for people to live. And meanwhile, wildfires, wildfires are getting worse. And in spite of the growing population, there aren't enough wildland firefighters to go around. The existing crews are spread thin and under a budgetary constraint, constraint under the government model. If the public good, which is fire services, which if the public good, which is fire services, um, excuse me. Uh, so I'm reading this incorrectly. So if the public good can't actually serve the public, shouldn't they be allowed to seek a better alternative? Uh, and so that's that's the argument is that just because it is a public good, there is a public service. It doesn't mean we should all be uh, monopolized under that single service. You should uh, be encouraged to have your own firefighting. The, the more we just start to ignore the government, <laughs> the faster we can make them go away. Um, private land also makes a big, big difference in this. So there's a chart in one of the Mises articles on this uh, from the article. Uh, hmm. Well, I'll be doggone. Uh I must have done something to delete my prep notes here. Let me go. Out, let me go to it. Um, okay, so you know, private land makes a huge difference, and you have to think about the American South. Uh, so the the South of America has far more trees and is more heavily forested than California. Uh, do you hear about any wildfires in places like uh, Georgia, for instance, or Mississippi? Uh, it is partly due to climate, but also partly due to the fact that the percentage of land in each of these different regions 
are publicly owned and managed compared to the land that is privately owned and managed. Uh, so uh, this Mises article writes, when land is privately owned, owners have a strong incentive to maintain its long-term value. In the South, this means that owners monitor their land for concentrations of deadwood that could spark fires. Especially during dry seasons, controlled burns are very common in the South as the buildup of tinder and other forms of fuel are eliminated, so they are less susceptible to lightning strikes or other events that could cause them to burn out of control. These landowners are acting in their self-interest because any fire that gets out of control affects their own pocketbook. But in acting in their own self-interest, they willingly perform actions that serve the social interest too. That's what's lacking in California, and indeed all Western states, which a vast majority of the land is owned and managed by the federal government or the state government. When this happens, the de facto caretakers of the land are state and federal wildlife employees, to say nothing of the U.S. Forest Service bureaucrats who just don't have the same incentives to manage land as carefully as private owners. They don't own the land. They stand to receive no significant benefit from it being well-managed. If they poorly management poorly manage it and let fuel build up to unsafe levels, they still keep their jobs. When wildfire breaks out, the perverse benefit these bureaucrats receive is increased funding and budgets. So, uh, the anti-bureaucrat tone in that, <laughs> uh, I I try to take a more polite tone, but it, it is true that they're in, these guys. I think people who work for the U.S. Forest Service probably love their job. They do it because they love the forests. They probably are listening to this program because they're upset because they know that things are being done the wrong way because the higher-ups in Washington, D.C. don't fund the correct things. They don't actually have policies that work. Whereas if they if these guys were in charge of the land, it probably would be done differently. But that's the problem of bureaucracy. These guys would own the land. They would be the ones directly taking care of it. The, the responsibility for America's forests would be spread out amongst millions as opposed to concentrated into the hands of 10,000 Americans. And so that is the, the one of the main culprits is that this land isn't privately owned. It's owned by the federal government, and it shouldn't be. And so a big reason that many of these uh, fires take place is that they are ill taken care of because of poor incentives. All right. So <clears throat> that is the, those are the solutions. You you have insurance. You have private ownership. And you're still going to have forest fires, but they're not going to burn as long. Uh, there may be some bad actors of private land, but by and large, they're going to protect their investment. And uh, it will certainly be fewer bad actors, fewer acres uh, owned by bad actors than the 80 million at-risk acres currently owned by the biggest bad actor, the federal government. So uh, with that, I want to say thank you to everyone that is a Patreon subscriber, especially Jason Doolittle, Craig DaCosta, Christy Avery, and the Libertarian Coalition. Thank you for your $100 a month support. You guys are awesome. And uh, everybody that contributes financially and, uh, uh, and, and you know, like our researchers, uh, Hody, Zach, Ripple, Hody Johns, Vaughn. Uh, I'm going to have to read it because I'm, I'm not going to say it right. Uh, Vaughn Sparger. Uh, and Jacob, last name withheld, I want to thank uh, the the research team. You guys are doing a great job. And if you want to spend less time arguing on Facebook and more time actually contributing to the knowledge of the world, it's greatly appreciated. 
Um, so thank you so much for listening to this program and uh, keep listening to those dailies. They've been excellent lately and uh, we appreciate your time and attention and we can only grow if you spread the word. So please make sure that you share the program and tell everybody about how great this show is and how much you learn and how handsome the host is with his great beard and his Santa suit. And uh, I hope that you all had a great Thanksgiving. I had a great Thanksgiving and uh, we'll see you tomorrow.